Hello and welcome back to the Overcrowded Bookshelf. My name is Tom Padgett and this is my audiobook podcast where I take books from my Overcrowded Bookshelf and I read them to you. Today we're jumping into a brand new story that's going to take us the next two weeks to read. And as you will have seen from the title, that story is The Diamond As Big As The Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Now with every new story I talk a bit about where you might know it from and of my history with the story. So where might you know the story from? Well, it's quite likely that you've heard of the author, F. Scott Fitzgerald. He's most well known as the writer of The Great Gatsby. You might also know the story, The Curious Tale of Benjamin Button. And he has quite a large catalogue of stories that you may have read or have heard of before. As for this specific story, unless you've read it yourself before, you probably haven't heard of this one, but that's okay. We're going to get into it today, and I hope you do enjoy this story. As for my history with this story, I haven't actually read a whole heap of F. Scott Fitzgerald myself, but I actually first heard of this story on a comedy podcast. Someone was describing the story and talking about how much they wanted to see a movie of it, and it sounded so interesting to me I had to go and read it myself. Having read it myself, I think it would make a great TV show or a movie adaptation, but until that happens, you'll have to settle for me reading the story to you. I don't think I need to say too much more in the intro to this one, let's just jump straight into the story. The Diamond As Big As The Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald Chapter 1 John T. Unger came from a family that had been well known in Hades, a small town on the Mississippi River, for several generations. John's father had held the amateur golf championship through many a heated contest. Mrs. Unger was known from hotbox to hotbed, as the local phrase went, for her political addresses, and young John T. Unger, who had just turned 16, had danced all the latest dances from New York before he put on long trousers. And now, for a certain time, he was to be away from home. That respect for a New England education, which is the bane of all provincial places, which drains them yearly of their most promising young men, had seized upon his parents. Nothing would suit them but that he should go to St. Midas's school near Boston. Hades was too small to hold their darling and gifted son. Now in Hades, as you know if you have ever been there, The names of the more fashionable preparatory schools and colleges mean very little. The inhabitants have been so long out of the world that, though they make a show of keeping up to date in dress and manners and literature, they depend to a great extent on hearsay, and a function that in Hades would be considered elaborate would doubtless be hailed by a Chicago beef princess as perhaps a little tacky. John T. Unger was on the eve of departure. Mrs. Unger, with maternal fatuity, packed his trunks full of linen suits and electric fans, and Mr. Unger presented his son with an asbestos pocketbook stuffed with money. "'Remember, you are always welcome here,' he said. "'You can be sure, boy, that we'll keep the home fires burning.' "'I know,' answered John huskily. Don't forget who you are and where you came from, continued his father proudly, and you can do nothing to harm you. You are an Unger, 
from Hades. So the old man and the young shook hands, and John walked away with tears streaming from his eyes. Ten minutes later he had passed outside the city limits, and he stopped to glance back for the first time. Over the gates, the old-fashioned Victorian motto seemed strangely attractive to him. His father had tried time and time again to have it changed to something with a little more push and verve about it, such as, Hades, your opportunity, or else a plain welcome sign set over a hearty handshake pricked out in electric lights. The old motto was a little depressing, Mr Unger had thought, but now... So John took his look and then set his fate resolutely towards his destination. And, as he turned away, the lights of Hades against the sky seemed full of a warm and passionate beauty. St Midas's school is half an hour from Boston in a Rolls-Pierce motorcar. The actual distance will never be known, for no one, except John T. Unger, had ever arrived there save in a Rolls-Pierce, and probably no one ever will again. St Midas's is the most expensive and the most exclusive boys' preparatory school in the world. John's first two years there passed pleasantly. The fathers of all the boys were money kings, and John spent his summers visiting at fashionable resorts. While he was very fond of all the boys he visited, their fathers struck him as being much of a piece and in his boyish way he often wondered at their exceeding sameness. When he told them where his home was, they would ask jovially, Pretty hot down there? And John would muster a faint smile and answer, It certainly is. His response would have been heartier had they not all made this joke, at best varying it with, Is it hot enough for you down there? Which he hated just as much. In the middle of his second year at school, a quiet, handsome boy named Percy Washington had been put in John's form. The newcomer was pleasant in his manner and exceedingly well-dressed, even for St Midas's, but for some reason he kept aloof from the other boys. The only person with whom he was intimate was John T. Unger, and even to John he was entirely uncommunicative concerning his home or his family. That he was wealthy went without saying, but beyond a few such deductions, John knew little of his friend, so it promised rich confectionery for his curiosity when Percy invited him to spend the summer at his home in the West. He accepted without hesitation. It was only when they were in the train that Percy became, for the first time, rather communicative. One day, while they were eating lunch in the dining car, and discussing the imperfect characters of several of the boys at school, Percy suddenly changed his tone, and made an abrupt remark. "'My father,' he said, "'is by far the richest man in the world.' "'Oh,' said John politely. He could think of no answer to make to this confidence. He considered, "'That's very nice,' but it sounded hollow, and was on the verge of saying, "'Really?' but refrained, since it would seem to question Percy's statement. And such an astounding statement could scarcely be questioned. By far the richest, repeated Percy. 
I was reading in the World Almanac, began John, that there was one man in America with an income of over five million a year, and four men with incomes of over three million a year, and, oh, they're nothing, Percy's mouth was a half-moon of scorn. Catchpenny capitalists, financial small fry, petty merchants and moneylenders. My father could buy them out and not know he'd done it. But how does he... Why haven't they put down his income tax? But how does he... Why haven't they put down his income tax? Because he doesn't pay any. At least he pays a little one. But he doesn't pay any on his real income. He must be very rich, said John simply. I'm glad. I like very rich people. The richer a fellow is, the better I like him. There was a look of passionate frankness upon his dark face. Vivian Schlitzer Murphy had rubies as big as hen's eggs, and sapphires that were like globes with lights inside them. I love jewels, agreed Percy enthusiastically. Of course I wouldn't want anyone at school to know about it, but I've got quite the collection myself. I used to collect them instead of stamps. And diamonds, continued John eagerly. The Schlitzer Murphys had diamonds as big as walnuts. That's nothing. Percy had leaned forward, and dropped his voice to a low whisper. That's nothing at all. My father has a diamond bigger than the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And that is the end of chapter one, unfortunately. I'm sorry to cut you off fairly early into the story. Bit of a shorter first chapter. I hope it's enough to tease you, get you into the story a bit. And don't worry, we'll be back tomorrow with the next chapter. But I hope you have enjoyed the first chapter. We're starting to get introduced to some of our characters, and there are lots more colourful characters to come. Already in this story, I love the language that's used. I find the dialogue so fluid and bouncing back and forth. And I just wanted to point out a phrase that I think is so beautiful. I enjoyed reading it. It rolled off my tongue. So it promised rich confectionery for his curiosity. What a fantastic phrase. Didn't pique his curiosity. It promised rich confectionery for his curiosity. I do love that. And the other fun thing I wanted to point out, there's a name in there of some other rich friends that John has visited. It comes up several other times throughout the story, and I'm going to struggle with it every time. Because I edit it, you may not have noticed that I struggled with it. But it really gets me, this name. It's Schlitzer Murphy. S-C-H-N-L-I-T-Z-E-R, Schlitzer, Murphy. I think it took me like 20 attempts to read the line with that name in it, and I'm kind of dreading that it's going to come up again, but hopefully you won't notice it too much, although now I've pointed it out, and you'll probably find that I pronounce it differently every time, but I hope you can forgive that. Anyway, as always, you can find the podcast at the Overcrowded Bookshelf on Facebook and at Overcrowded underscore Bookshelf on Instagram. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you for the next one. God bless.